the more I share it, the responses I get from people. I turned it into a kid's book and a lady gave it to her son with ADD and he sent me a note and said, thank you, Mr. Rendell, for the book. It made me feel better about who I am. I was the first person who told a 10-year-old that his worst quality, his ADHD, was actually an advantage that he could use to be successful. The first person that told him there was hope for his future and that was transformative, right? So then when that happens, then that inspires me even more to keep going and to share it with more and more people. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Fred Rogers, and it is, one of the most important gifts a parent can give a child is the gift of accepting that child's uniqueness. Our guest today, David Rendell, has helped many people embrace what makes them unique. He's a leadership professor, nonprofit executive, stand-up comedian, and keynote speaker to clients such as Microsoft, AT&T, the U.S. Air Force, and many more. He's also the author of four books, including The Freak Factor, The Four Factors of Effective Leadership, and Pink Goldfish. David, welcome. I'm excited to have you on the Elevate podcast today. I'm excited to be on the Elevate podcast. So you've described yourself as being a class clown as a kid. Can you talk a bit about how the adults in your life tried to maybe push you away from your your natural tendencies and and how that went for you? Yeah, so they didn't call them my natural tendencies. (laughs) They called it being bad. They called it being irresponsible. They called it a lack of self-control. They called it being rebellious. They called it being naughty, um, all sorts of things. And uh, yeah, I mean, they yelled at me, they punished me, they physically disciplined me, uh, they threatened me, they intimidated me. And so, I mean, it was just a constant uh, barrage of messages that this is wrong, this is bad. And even if you take it from a positive standpoint, like they were trying to help me, which I do think they had the right intentions, they were convinced and and then convinced me that that the characteristics that I had had no upside, had no positives, um, and needed to be completely eradicated from my life if I was ever going to have any shred of of success or happiness. Well, that's a very optimistic uh, view. Let's. I want to break this down (laughs) a little bit because I never liked the word they. So, can you explain who are the they's and what is it exactly that you were doing that was so abhorrent? Yeah. Okay. So there's a bunch of days. Let's start at home. Mom and dad, you know, called me motor mouth. A lot of, uh, you know, go to your room, a lot of getting spankings. Um, what am I doing wrong? I'm talking. I mean, literally my mom sometimes in the car would be like, no talking. Nobody gets to talk. Um, it's like, wow, that's like, I mean, I've had kids. I've had three kids. I, you know, never put in a no talking rule. So, um, you know, breaking that rule. Um, not doing what you're told. There's a lot of rules at our house growing up. Pretty much everything was wrong. Pretty much you were never supposed to be doing anything. And so when I would break those rules, we were a very, very religious family too. Um, You weren't just going against your parents. You were going against God. You weren't just doing something wrong. You were doing something like morally wrong by going against God's authority in your life. Those are pretty heavy things to take on as like a nine-year-old, you know? Yeah. At school, same things. You can't talk. You got to stop talking. You stepped on the grass off the sidewalk. You were supposed to stay on the sidewalk. You argued with the teacher um, when uh, you didn't like something. You asked a question. You didn't participate. You did participate, but you participated inappropriately. You made a joke. I mean, just on and on. I mean, I got kicked out of art class because I was talking too much when art class was just drawing. It was us sitting and drawing. And uh, it wasn't against the rules to talk, but the teacher didn't like my talking, she kicked me out, said, I think we're all tired of listening to you. Uh, the other kids took a poll and said, we aren't tired of listening to him. Can you come back? <laughs> Speak more. Then she hated me more than she hated me to begin with. And so that just gets repeated grade after grade. I mean, I'd get kicked out of class. That's another thing that would happen, a punishment, which wasn't much of a punishment. But then a teacher would see me in the hallway who hadn't even ever had me in class and be like, I heard about you and you get to my class. I'm not going to take your crap. So I was like pre in trouble with people. So yeah, it's just a constant message that 
it's like being a fish in water. It's the constant message was, there's something wrong with you. And I had no ability at the time to see that anything other than that might be true. That I wasn't one of those kids who was like, I'm going to show you, I'm going to make a million dollars and then you're going to be sorry. Um, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a loser. Well, that's disappointing, but I guess you win some, you lose some, you know, like you're adults, you must know, right? I figured they must have the inside scoop. And so I didn't question what they said because I figured they must know. And, and when everybody's telling you, there wasn't anybody who said, you know, Dave, don't worry about it. You'll be a speaker someday or something like that. It was just a constant message. Was the school, was it public school or was it religious school? It was also a religious school. Yeah. Yeah. And then different ones over time. Uh, <laughs> they moved you around. So, you know, you said something the first time I saw you speak. It's one of those things that I've used it a lot. I've told the story. It's really, it stuck with me. You, you said, you know, in school, you got told to sit down and shut up all the time. And if someone had told you that you could get paid to stand up and talk and the type of money that you are paid now to do that, you would have said, that's what I want to do. And that's really clear. And, and you know, it gets to this whole kind of paint by number career thing that I think we have for for kids, I think if they're really good at dribbling a soccer ball, uh, we know what to do with them. If they're really good at playing the piano, we know what to do with them. If they're good at talking, if they're good at marketing, if they're selling homework and showing entrepreneurial tendencies, I'm not sure the traditional <laughs> education system yeah. like knows what to do with these people, when, even when they're demonstrating high aptitude uh, at an early age. Well, and let me even push back on even that a little bit, because I think you're right to some extent. But if somebody's really good at dribbling a soccer ball and they're getting bad grades, what do we do? We threaten their athletic participation if they can't improve their grades. Right. So we threaten to take away the thing that they're the best at if they can't do these other things. And the message is, if you're not good at everything, then you're not going to be successful and you have to be good at all the things or else you're disqualified. And then let's keep going, because athletics, you're right. But even think about somebody who's crushing it in band. Um, but if they're doing bad in other classes, what's the message? Well, it doesn't matter that you're doing well in band. It doesn't matter yeah. that you're doing well in art class. It doesn't matter if you're doing well in drama class. If you're not doing good in reading, writing, and arithmetic, even now more, it's if you're not doing good in the STEM classes, then you're not going to be successful. And yet, who do we pay the most in the real world? We pay artists, we pay actresses and actors, uh, we pay musicians, and we pay athletes more than we pay anybody else. But when you're doing good at those things, in school and not doing good at traditional school, the message is if you can't figure out traditional school, you're going to be a failure. When that's not even close to the reality of real life. Do you know anyone that takes tests for a living? Yeah, right. <laughs> I was just thinking about this the other day. We just, um, I, my daughter wasn't feeling well and I picked her up from school and my other daughter was driving because she's got her temporary license and she's trying to get in some miles and she does online school. So she was free to just do what she wanted. And so she drove me over there and we were driving past these little kids after we picked up my daughter, these little like kindergartners who are walking in a line and the teacher literally had them walking, holding their index finger up to their mouth, like the shush sign. And that's how they were apparently supposed to walk, walk in a line and remind yourself to be quiet by holding up your finger to your mouth to be quiet as they were outside. There's literally nobody they could bother. And what we all agreed in the car is there's never really a time in your adult life when you are not allowed to talk, right? Like you don't get on the airplane. They're like, all right, everybody shut up. No more talking. <laughs> That's the end of it. You don't walk into the, the, the airplane lounge, the airport lounge. All right, this is a no talking zone, everybody. Like they're preparing you for literally a situation that just doesn't exist, Right. And how many times do you have to walk in a line? Like we're not in the military. When was the last time you walked in a line and had to stay carefully behind the person in front of you? So, right. I think we're, we're teaching all sorts of skills that aren't as important. And then we're, we're negating the ones that are. Yeah. It's, it's been brought up a lot recently, which is interesting because I think what we're doing, particularly in the U S school system is going against all the data. So every year, Norway wins all these awards for the best educational system and they're no structure, no standardized tests, free play, running around out there. There was a great article, I think it was in Vanity Fair, the New York Times, that I read where a couple from New York moved to Norway and a couple from Norway moved to New York City. And I think the New York couple got to New York City and they had a three-year-old and the school met with them and they came in and they said, well, do you have her test results? And, and they're like, what, what, do you, what, what do you mean her test results? Like, what? Right. like, what are you talking about? She's like three years old. Yeah, And uh, it just doesn't seem to be backed by any data or reality, but we're doubling and, and tripling down on it. 
Yeah, and that's another good one. I was talking to somebody about schooling earlier today, and uh, both of my older daughters, they're 17 and 15, they both are in situations, one, uh, where she's able to take community college classes while she's still in high school. She goes to high school in the morning and community college in the afternoon, and she's already got almost three semesters of college credit, and then they want her to take the ACT and the SAT to see what her college aptitude is. Yeah. to see how she might perform in college. And I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure we're clear on how she's going to perform in college because she's already done a year and a half of college, right? Yeah. So it, it doesn't make any sense. And yet, in the same thing, uh, well, why don't you take this AP class in high school? And if you do well enough, a college will accept it as a course if you can pass this test that proves you know enough of it to opt out of the college class. Or you could just take the college class and prove that you can do the college class. So there's all these sort of nonsensical things that are happening. And then she's even applying to colleges who will give her a scholarship based on her SAT scores, um, not based on the 30 credits of college classes she's already taken because they feel like, you know, that's without even thinking about it, right? It's just the standard predictor. Well, what's your SAT? Well, that tells us how you'll do. Well, I have straight A's in every college class I've taken to this point. Yeah, I don't know. We'll just, we'll focus on the, the predictor instead of the actual results. What I, what I actually think is, is even interesting is I, I've thought about this in the context of, of business school and I, and I did not go to business school, but I've had friends uh, were past that cycle who applied to business school and they are going back and studying stuff that they haven't used for 20 years for the entrance exam, like geometry and shapes and stuff like that. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and uh, now it's a GMAT. That's what it's called. So they're going back yeah. and like stuff that like, you know, they've been leaders of companies and managers and, and, and tops in their field. And, and, and they're going back and studying stuff for tests that they literally haven't used since they probably studied for the, the SAT. Yeah. And then they're getting recommendations. But the way that most people get recommendations, they ask for recommendations and says, someone says, sure, you, you know, you write it and I'll submit it. So yeah. the things that you're giving the most weight to are stuff that are not what they've actually been doing, but the standardized tests where they're going back and studying this stuff and the recommendations that most people told them to do themselves. And any good business that I know would call the reference, they would back check, they would ask for references that they didn't give. Is this person actually who they said they are? But none of those best business practices are actually used to get into business school. So it does seem out of whack. Well, you, you talk a lot about like how your strengths were, were really painted as weaknesses. At what point did you realize that this hyperactive, energetic personality actually wasn't a weakness, but was a strength and was something you could lean into? Yeah, it was probably my late 20s. I started seeing that when I did you know, stand up and talk instead of sit down and, and stay quiet. People liked it. People laughed at the five-minute speech that I gave for the Chamber of Commerce when I was volunteering on the board. You know, people chuckled and paid attention when I gave the 10-minute talk, you know, to my team uh, to wrap up the year. When I was in a group and somebody had to share what the group had done uh, with the wider group, uh, people would volunteer me to do the presentation, even though I was trying to, you know, control myself and not be uh, the communicator, because you're supposed to sit and listen. Um, when I took charge of things and led things, instead of doing what I was told, it seemed to work and people seemed to like it and it seemed to be effective. And um, I just, I was listening to some stuff about positive psychology, which is about focusing on your strengths, but I didn't think I knew what my strengths were yet, you know? Yeah, And then as I just had a realization, I was like, well, wait a second. What if the way you know your strengths is what if my biggest weaknesses are my biggest strengths? And in fact, it wasn't multiple. It was like, I wonder if my biggest weakness is also a strength. And I just had that question. And um, as soon as I had that question, I just started finding the answer was yes. And the answer was everywhere. And it's not your weaknesses is strength, but your weaknesses are strengths and not your weaknesses are strengths. Everyone's weaknesses are strengths. And, and to this day, it's been 20 years almost since then. I just see it every single day and people send me stories and people get it and people tell me about their kids and it's everywhere um, in the world. We're just blind to it because we don't think weaknesses are strengths. We think weaknesses are weaknesses and strengths are strengths. And we think we know what even strengths would be 
and we think we can test form going back to what you said, and we think we know what good looks like when we see it, and we think we can tell you who the good students are going to be and who the good adults are going to be and who's going to make it and who's not going to, and we're wrong almost every time. I mean, there was a study recently that came out that said uh, most valedictorians don't outperform the other students in their future lives. There's been a lot of those coming out because they're yeah. sort of maximum conformists and, yeah. and don't want to get everything wrong. Before I, We're going to dive into the freak factor a little bit, but I, before I do that, I, I'm curious. So between that time when you figured this out and, and the time when you were being shunned by everyone uh, early on, like how was your self-esteem during that period? <laughs> I think it would be an exaggeration to say that I had any. Yeah. I mean, it was demoralizing. It was difficult. It was because there was also other things, you know, I also was very, very skinny and uh, we'd change schools, not because I got kicked out or anything, but just because of the, the school would move or the school would close. And so I went to five different schools by the time oh. I was in eighth grade. So if I made friends, I'd lose those friends and have to try to make friends with kids who already had friends. I got teased mercilessly because of the way I looked. So when you add that on top, when the kids don't get you and like you and the, the adults don't get you and like you, I mean, it leaves you kind of um, alone. I remember I would tell my mom I was sick so I didn't have to go to football practice, even though I loved football because it was a bunch of kids I didn't know from different schools and they would all gang up and make fun of me and call me names. And, you know, I didn't like going to school because I was always in trouble and I didn't like coming home because then I was always in trouble. So, I mean, it was devastating. It was, it was awful. And it was, you know, I don't, think I had a self-esteem. Like I said, I wasn't one of those kids who fought back. I was just kind of demoralized. I thought, well, this isn't going to be good. And so I'll just try to hang in there and hope for the best. But I didn't really have any hope for the best. And I didn't think there was a best that was sort of around the corner. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time. And it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate. So that's a, a good segue into what, what is the freak factor and what inspired you to write a book about it? Yeah, what expired, inspired me was just, I wish someone would have told me what I discovered on my own much sooner. I wish they would have told my parents. I wish they would have told my teachers. I wish they would have told my managers. Um, I wish more people knew about this sooner. And so the reason I wrote it is because I wanted to share that message. And, and the way I came up with it was just realizing, it was just like self-reflection, realizing this was happening to me, realizing this was true for me, exploring it and seeing it's true for other people, sharing it, and then having people share their stories or other stories with me to show me that this is true. I mean, just all over the place, all over the world. And then the more I share it, the responses I get from people, 
I turned it into a kid's book and a lady gave it to her son with ADD. And he said, he sent me a note and said, thank you, Mr. Rendell for the book. It made me feel better about who I am. Hmm. I was the first person who told a 10 year old that his worst quality, his ADHD was actually an advantage that he could use to be successful. The first person that told him there was hope for his future. And that was transformative, right? Um, and so then when that happens, then that inspires me even more to keep going and to share it with more and more people. Um, so it was just seeing that lesson that weaknesses are strengths. That's the essence of the freak factor. And so you shouldn't fix them because there's nothing to fix. You should actually amp it up. You should dial it up. You should embrace it and increase it instead of trying to moderate it or reduce it and be more of who you are instead of trying to conform more to what other people tell you success looks like uh, and that that's the true path to success. So in addition to a doctoral degree in management, you also have a graduate degree in psychology, which I'm, I'm impressed that you could sit through that. That, <laughs> that seems like a lot of class. How, how did your understanding of psychology help you uh, with developing the freak factor? Like which came first? Was there a chicken and an egg? Yeah, my understanding of psychology didn't help at all. <laughs> so two things I'll say uh, before that is you said you were surprised I could sit through that. What's interesting, I think about just about anybody, um, some parent will say my kid can't focus, but they actually can. They can play Call of Duty for 19 hours in a row without right. ever taking a bathroom break. My kid's not motivated. Yeah, they are motivated. They're motivated to play soccer. Uh, we have all these things we say about people that aren't true. I could sit still when I was doing something that I wanted to do. Um, it kind of goes back to not wanting to do what I was told. When I was in college and I discovered psychology and I was naturally interested in it and I wanted to learn it, my grades improved and my focus improved because I was doing what I wanted to do. So I think that's a key factor is I'm not good at doing what I'm supposed to do, but I'm a goal-oriented person. And when I want something, I can do just about anything to get it, but I'm not going to do that for the goal you want me to achieve. So that helped with school. The, the problem with school was that was still me trying to conform. Right. I mean, I got a master's because I thought I needed it to get the kind of job I wanted to have and even the kind of job I already had in nonprofits, helping people with disabilities, a master's degree is kind of the, the basic uh, requirement. And so um, it was still me trying to prove to them, whoever they are, future employers, those kinds of things, that I'm worthy of the opportunity to work at their organization. And so that was one problem with it. The other problem with it was there was nothing I learned during really any of my degrees that I speak about or teach in the Freak Factor. There wasn't even positive psychology. I mean, I have four years of undergraduate in psychology and two years of graduate school in psychology, and there wasn't even a paragraph in one of the books in one of the classes on positive psychology, and it's been out for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, there wasn't even a mention that, hey, we're all focused on mental illness, and we're all focused on what's wrong with people, and we're all focused on the DSM and pathologizing people's problems. But there's this other side of the coin that says, what if we looked at mental health and what if we looked at happiness and what if we looked at strengths and what if we looked at what was working for people and tried to help them build on their successes? That wasn't even a suggestion in six years of education that was supposed to kind of span um, all of psychology. And so even through my doctoral work, I never really read or learned anything any different than all the stuff we're all taught every single day. It was just more of the same and more of do it this way, do it the right way, do it the way everybody else does it. Uh, there's nothing I really teach or speak about that really has um, anything to do with any of those educational experiences that I had. Can you give an example? You, you, know, you did an exercise uh, one of the times I saw you speak where everyone picked their strengths and then their weaknesses and then they went to this thing where you saw that they were actually matched up. But, so can you share a couple examples of like strengths that are weaknesses or weaknesses that are strengths just to kind of illuminate this for everyone? Yeah, the easiest one to share is you got someone who's stubborn, right? It's your kid is too stubborn. They don't want to do what you ask them to do. They don't want to give up on things when they're not working. They stick with things longer than you think is reasonable. They um, drive you crazy. They'll ask you 18 times if they can have a sleepover, even after you told them no. Have you been talking to my third child? Have you been on? <laughs> and that is my third child as well. And so we'll play a game instead of me telling you what's, so that's the weakness, stubbornness. What's the strength? What's the upside of being that way? And what do we call it when somebody is positively unwilling to let go of the things they're trying to accomplish. 
Determined, perseverant. Yeah, persistent, right? Yeah. Determined. Um, and, and wouldn't we all love to have determined, persevering, persistent children? We just don't like it when they're doing it to us. Once they're out of your house. So that's right? the key, right? So while it's happening to us, we see it as a weakness, but we'd yeah. love for them to have that quality as an adult. And yet we don't realize that at the time. So we deliberately try to break them of that characteristic and reduce those kinds of behaviors. And we sanction and criticize those behaviors and tell them things like this isn't going to work for you and you shouldn't behave like this and nobody wants to deal with somebody who's so difficult. When none of those things are true, what you really should say is, I don't like this right now, but this is going to be awesome for you in the future. So I need to be the grown up in this situation and not criticize you for it, right? And that's a, that's a hard thing to do <laughs> most of the time because we don't see that upside, right? At the time, we don't see that upside. Or then we still would tell ourselves, even if we see the upside, we'd start talking about balance and things like that. Well, you don't want to be too persistent. And yet we have billboards about Thomas Edison trying the yeah. light bulb 10,000 times. And then someone would say, yeah, but you don't want your kid to be too persistent. But what do you think 10,000 times is? And that's bordering on being a lunatic, not just being a little bit too persistent. So that's one of the easiest examples for people to understand you know, other ones are people who are organized or oftentimes inflexible. Uh, the weakness of being inflexible is related to the strength of being organized and wanting things to be all in the right place, which means the place you think they're supposed to be. And yet, messy people are oftentimes very creative. Um, so they're not organized, but they're not bad people. Uh, they're very creative. And it's not bad that an organized person is inflexible. They're oftentimes less creative, but they're very good at putting things in order that already exist. Every weakness has a corresponding strength. Every strength has a corresponding weakness. And when we see that in ourselves and others, it starts to change the way we try to get better and the way we try to help other people get better. All right. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back with David. Whenever I'm doing an interview and someone asks me about the best productivity tool I use, my answer is SaneBox. I've been using SaneBox for four years and cannot manage my email without it. SaneBox artificial intelligence monitors your inbox and moves email you don't need to read right away to your Sane Later folder. All that's left in your inbox is the important stuff. You can also snooze emails and have them come back to you in your inbox at the right time. If you know how email folders work, then you know how SaneBox works. Find an email in the wrong folder, just move it. There's nothing to learn, nothing to install. SaneBox works directly with every single email server or service that's ever been created. Get a free two-week trial and a $25 credit by visiting sanebox.com slash elevate. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash elevate. And we're back with David Rendell. So I just want to circle back uh, to this hypothetical example of my, my friend uh, and, their, and, and their persistent child. So in this case, though, not, not telling them it's bad, but... Maybe a strategy, would a strategy be to talk with a kid about how to pick their battles and that actually maybe a battle about everything isn't helping them, but, you know, learning where and when to maybe, you know, modulate. I think we need to be coached on how to understand where our strength becomes a weakness and where maybe it doesn't get us what we want, right? Yeah. So where's a crucial word? So let's talk really fast through the framework. So Step one with your kid, you want to be aware that the weakness has a corresponding strength. If you don't even see that, you can't do anything else. Um, the next one is to accept it, that the kid can't be less stubborn and more persistent at the same time. You have to accept that those two things are two sides of the same coin. And then yeah. you have to actually appreciate it, right? Appreciate it for the future, but also appreciate it in the present. This is going to be a characteristic that helps in the future, but also appreciate it right now. You know, it's, it's a good quality to be persistent. And there's probably times in their schoolwork and in potential friendships or maybe in sports where their persistence is already paying off. And so don't just accept it, appreciate it. But then like what you're talking about, okay, what do you do to kind of help them be a successful person. So one actually goes against your initial suggestion, which is not only would you tell them like to pick their battles, you would actually do the reverse. You'd actually look for opportunities for them to crank it up, right? You'd tell them, hey, this persistence thing is awesome. Let's start looking for opportunities for you to be even more persistent than you already are. And that's just a mind blower, right? Like it's like, that's not what I want. Right? <laughs> that is the absolute not what I want. But that's where your next question was so crucial. So after amplification is alignment. So part of the way 
that you find opportunities to turn it up is you find situations where massive persistence pays off. So you start telling that kid, not so much pick your battles, but let's look for opportunities for you to be more persistent. And let's talk about environments in which persistence really, really pays off. So for example, you know, people in like medical research, and that's not an opportunity for a child most of the time, but in medical research can sometimes go on for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, just grinding away at these little minuscule kind of fragments of hope before this huge breakthrough happens. And you can't just be a little bit into it um, in order to create something like that. So talking to them about those kinds of things, looking at situations in their current life, like sports, like school, where their persistence is paying off and having them choose projects or activities. Or to your point earlier, why not teach a kid to be an entrepreneur at a young age and have them start persisting at building a business at a really young age before they even have an idea of what couldn't be done, right? And so those are really the, care, the things that I would encourage people to do to not try to reduce it or moderate it, but to actually look for opportunities to amplify it and to find that alignment and find that fit where the kid does learn in these situations my weakness is a strength. In other situations, like maybe school, um, it looks more like a weakness. When I'm interacting with my parents, it might look more like a weakness. But there are situations in which this is a massive strength. And that goes back to helping the kid accept who they are and appreciate who they are. And then the last two are to avoid things that aren't in alignment. And that's a really hard one for kids because they have to go to school or we think they do. And they have to take all the classes and they have to pass all the classes. Um, And so we have a hard time with that. But let's just take chores at home. What if we assign chores to our kids, not based on everybody has to do everything, but what if we gave um, the person who loves to be active and do physical things, active physical chores? And what if we gave somebody who was really good with technology and computers, but wasn't very active, what if we gave them chores like paying bills and uh, ordering things online and making sure we always had toilet paper and paper towels in stock from Amazon instead of everybody has to do everything, everybody has to chip in. Sure they do, but why can't they do it based on their strengths instead of their weaknesses? So what can people not have to do? What can people avoid? And then the last one, which kind of goes to the one we just talked about is affiliation. Can we look for opportunities to show our kids that you don't have to be good at everything? You just have to have relationships with people who can do things you can't do. And the reason that's such a hard lesson to learn is because in school, that's called cheating. If you pay someone to do what you can't do from age five to age 22, that's cheating from age 23 on it's collaboration. Delegation too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's both, right? It's collaboration. It's delegation. It's outsourcing. It's a lot of different things, but in school, it's just straight up cheating. And so those, that's the process. Um, But it all starts with even just emotionally being able to look at your kid and being able to see that upside, that persistence that really you weren't seeing before because you were so honed in on that stubbornness that you couldn't even feel good about that characteristic at all. And you felt like really less is probably better. Once you can get rid of that instinct and see the upside, it starts to change the ways you would try to respond to them. I assume that parenting has been really affected by the achievement-oriented culture today where, you know, there's a lot of pressure to get the best grades, go to the best schools, conform to the standard. As we talked about before, uh, there's been some interesting data on valedictorians lately. How can the freak factor sort of change the conversation on parenting? Like, how how can you get people to really realize that this this paint by numbers and and do all the stuff that a lot of people just don't want to do is not the right path maybe for their kid? Yeah. So I think it's just, it's simply redefining what good is, right? Good isn't necessarily getting good grades, getting into a good school and getting a good job. And especially for entrepreneurs, when we've had unconventional success in our life as entrepreneurs, why are we trying to help our kids have conventional success Yeah. as employees? So why can't they have the same permission to drop out of school, to fail classes, to uh, completely reject the status quo, to not go to college at all, to sell homework to their friends at age 11 as a way to learn marketing. Um, Why did we have permission or at least we see that that worked out for us in the end and then we want our kids to conform to a new model of success that's more traditional because that's what our friends and neighbors would respect. Look, failure is a great teacher and our inability to let kids fail young and to make that a bad thing I think is is setting us up for 
just colossal failure down the road. Yeah. So I think it's redefining what success is and success in the freak factor is helping your kid discover who they are and find a place in the world where that's valuable. Um, and that's really a whole lot different than go to a good school and get a good job, et cetera, et cetera. There's a million different ways. In fact, you know, there's seven plus billion people on earth. There's seven plus billion ways to do that. And none of them involve getting into a really good preschool. You know, regardless of what stats you look at, I've managed in my entrepreneurial career without having any kind of crazy Jeff Bezos kind of success, uh, just making a little more than the average person. Um, I'm probably in the top one to 2% of wage earners in the United States, just working on my own out of my house. And I went to the freaking University of Phoenix for my doctorate online while I was working full time. I went to University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee for my master's in the evenings while working full time. Nobody has to get into a good preschool to go to those schools. And then, oh, by the way, those schools and even my degrees at those schools wasn't part of me developing my speaking business. None of it was required. You don't have to have a doctorate to start a speaking business. You don't have to have a master's degree to write a book. And like I already said, I didn't write about any of the things I learned in those scenarios. I got the doctorate so I could be a college professor. And I've quit that to do my business full time. So success, and you can see it in story after story after story, doesn't, I mean, even look at Bill Gates and Zuckerberg, right? They dropped out of college. I think even the people we point to as college success stories would have been successful anyway. They just happened to run through that school on their way to success. And you can see that's true based on the people who dropped out and then had massive success. The schools right. are picking the winners yeah, and then just letting them live there for four years and going, look at what we turned them into. No, you didn't take a loser and turn them into a winner. You took an already top 2% person and you, you kept them in the top 2%. Good job. Yeah, I, I love that argument. And it's, look, Harvard Business School, Stanford, a great business school. But it, it, if they could take, if they had blind admissions and could produce yeah. someone at the same level, then it'd be a very different case than taking the top 1% because the top 1% are, are going to do well. Well, it's the same thing we understand in athletics. Nobody thinks, nobody thinks that the University of Kentucky basketball program takes terrible basketball players yeah. and in one year turns them into national champions and then sends them to the NBA draft. What they recognize that they do is the University of Kentucky picks oftentimes the best five high school players in the entire nation, puts them all together on the same team, wins a national championship. They all leave and go to the NBA just like they were going to, even if they would have went to Towson State. Uh, it doesn't matter that they went to the University of Kentucky and the coach does not pretend that he somehow transformed these people in nine and a half months from bums who ate a lot of potato chips and watched movies into top quality basketball players. Um, and yet with college, we act like that's the same. We take every success those people have after they graduated from XYZ University and act like it was the responsibility and somehow was accomplished by what the university did for that person when oftentimes there's no connection there. So I think that's, I mean, that's what I try to teach parents is A, there's a million definitions of success. Therefore, there's a million and one routes to that success. And so what we have to do is be willing to individually define success for each of our children one at a time and not be so concerned. And I'll say this as a parent because I, I know it happens to me. We have to be not so concerned about what other people think about our kids or what other people think about us because of our kids and care more about our kids than we care about how that makes us look to other people and be willing to take an unconventional path. I mean, right now I'm at home and my middle daughter is in the room right next to me and she's on her Mac and she's going to online homeschool and she has for the last two and a half years. Every course she takes from now on is a college course. She's already got eight college credits and she's on her way to more. She'll graduate high school with a two-year college degree from a place no one's heard of and she skipped first grade she's had an entirely unconventional school career because my goal for her is for her to be successful my goal is not for her to fit into some system and when she didn't fit into the school system we skipped her when skipping wasn't enough we put her into a completely different program that's based on her she works at her speed she wakes up when she wants to she does her stuff in her way she schedules her stuff on her own time and she does gymnastics 16 hours a week. And so she asked for a different lifestyle because school didn't really fit in that lifestyle. And we adapted her life to her instead of saying, nope, good kids go to college. 
good kids go to regular school, good kids socialize at school with other kids, good kids, what are the other parents going to think? And sure enough, what do people say? What about socialization? And well, do you really think that's a good idea? And what do you think she's going to miss about the school experience? Nobody questions what their kid is doing because my kid's doing a weird thing. I've got to defend myself. Yeah. And so we have to be willing to take some of the heat that's going to come from building a life for our kid based on who they are instead of trying to teach our kid that success in life is figuring out what the world wants and giving it to them so that you don't get made fun of or you don't get in trouble or that you don't stand out. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, Dave, let's flip this for a second. So now you're no longer a kid and you're a functioning adult. (laughs) Not you, but, but the person where, you know, okay, so we're done. Like now... I'm both, I think, individuals and businesses. Like, how should one approach? You know, let's say I realize I'm, I'm, and that really organized person that can tend yeah. to hold things back. I mean, how, how should I? I mean, we have often the strength finders and stuff like that. But how, yeah. how do you suggest that people approach their strengths once they have identified them, understand their weaknesses? Yeah. And what can organizations learn from the same approach? Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer those separately and we'll use that same framework. So it starts with, like you said, do strengths finder, do the assessment that's on my website in my book. Pick your strengths, pick your weaknesses, see how they're connected. That's awareness. The next one is acceptance. Go, okay, this is me. Stop trying to fix it or go, well, yeah, I'm a little inflexible, but you know, I can adapt. I can change. I'm, I'm, it's not that bad. It's like, stop that. Just you're organized. You're inflexible. Things need to be in the right place. There's nothing wrong with that. What do we do with that, right? Accept that. And then appreciate it. Look at all the ways that that's helped you have a better life. Look at the way that's helped you organize your schoolwork or organize your business or organize your personal life. Think of all the praise and appreciation you've gotten from people over your lifetime about how you have things together. Appreciate that part of who you are and then look for opportunities to amplify it, right? Let's take organized, you know, join the National Association of Professional Organizers and find a bunch of people who are even more organized than you. And you're like, (laughs) holy crap, there's another level, right? And that's the first step, amplification, right? Then dial it up. You're like, whoa, there's better label makers than the one I already had, you know? There's a whole different world out there. And then you're getting paid for it, right? These people are professional organizers, whereas the people in your life were like, you've got OCD, why don't you calm down? And then these people are like, you're not hardcore enough, you know what I mean? You don't, you don't organize your clothes by hue and by fabric, you know? Holy cow, let's take it up a notch, right? And then... So you try to find that alignment. So you look at starting that business on the side or you look at volunteering in some area that really taps into your strengths. So you look at getting a part-time job that allows you to really play to your strengths. And now you've found that alignment, you're amplifying, and then you look for opportunities to unload that other stuff. You know, I started my business uh, avoidance. You know, I started my business by paying the neighbor kid 20 bucks a week to mow my grass. And I took those three hours that I was mowing the grass and I said, I don't know what I'm doing, and I, but I'm going to read a book about starting a business. I'm going to read a book about starting a consulting company. I'm going to read a book about starting a training company. I'm going to read a book about how to write a book. I'm going to find my friend that I used to work with a couple of years ago who can put up a quick website for me. I'm going to get my father-in-law into his graphic design to make me a business card. And I started my business because I was doing something that was in alignment and amplifying my strengths of running my own thing, doing my own thing, being an entrepreneur. And I was avoiding those tasks that required me to do repetitive things that I'm not good at or do what other people wanted me to do or do things that weren't helping me to achieve my goals. 
And then the last one was affiliation. I mean, throughout my business, the number of people I've hired to do just about everything, I literally work by myself. And I don't try to run my website. I certainly don't make computers. I don't design all my slides. I don't print my own books. I don't design my own book covers. I mean, I literally pay everyone to do everything for me. And I speak. I talk for an hour at a conference and people pay me enough money for me to pay my bills and pay a bunch of people to run the other parts of my business. And so that's the same process once you're an adult and you have more freedom as an adult to do the things like avoidance. It's really hard to avoid those three classes you don't like in high school. It's not hard to avoid those tasks in life. You just outsource it. You put it on Fiverr. You put it on Elance. You hire a part-time person. You partner with a person or hire an employee who can do those things for you. That's affiliation and avoidance at the same time. Um, and then that same thing works for your employees. When you have employees, you sit down with them, you share your strengths and weaknesses and how you're not perfect. And then you ask them for their strengths and weaknesses. You do the assessment together. And then you accept that these people aren't about to be someone different. You got who you got and you can either deal with that or you can let them go, but you're not going to turn them into somebody else. And then you appreciate it. You look for those situations where their style has been helpful to your business or it's been helpful to you as a person. Then you look for opportunities for them to amplify it. What if I gave them an opportunity to be even more creative? What if I gave this person an opportunity to be even more organized? What is a project where this person could be even more persistent and even more stubborn? And you find an alignment. What are, what are roles that we have in this business? What are roles we could create in this business that would really let this person come alive? How do I take work away from them, avoidance that doesn't let them build on their strengths, that requires them to use their weaknesses? I'm not getting 100% from somebody who doesn't like it and isn't very good at it, so I don't want them to be doing those things. And then affiliation, how do we all do this on a daily basis to where we're consistently trading work and sharing work and communicating in such a way that we're partnering with people who are strong where we're weak, where no one's being stuck doing work they don't like. And no one's in a situation where they don't get to use their strengths. Everybody comes to work and gets to do what they do best every single day. Uh, Peter Drucker, I share this in my talk. He said, organizations exist to make people's strengths effective and their weaknesses irrelevant. So if you're running the organization, that's your number one job. How do I come into work every day and make sure I'm making my strengths effective and my weaknesses irrelevant? How do I make sure I'm doing the same for my employees? And what about the company? I mean, does the company need to get better at the whole thing? Look, we don't, you know, there's a sort of saying that when you're starting your company, saying yes to everything is, is how you're successful. But then soon, you know, it's what you say no to that makes you successful. So yeah. how, how do you look at that? Is it where companies just say, look, that's not us. That's not what we do. And they need, they need to sort of embrace that more. Yeah. So everything we've been talking about so far is the freak factor and the freak factor for kids. And then my friend Stan Phelps, uh, writes a goldfish series of books on marketing and strategy and things like that. And he said, Dave, we've got to write the freak factor for companies. And so we called it pink goldfish. And um, yeah. it's this idea that companies can do exactly the same thing. So I'll just give you a quick story that should illustrate it, that companies' weaknesses can also be their strengths. You're never going to make everybody happy. You're never going to have all the products. Your product's never going to be just right. I just saw this this morning. Burger King's being sued by vegans who, I saw that. <laughs> who say that the Impossible Burger is cooked on a grill that also has meat residue. Um, it's not like it's being cooked in meat residue as like a, like a French fry might be cooked in an animal fat where it's part of the process. It, just a, it's a, it happens to happen, and a vegan isn't arguing they have an allergy or something like that. But the point is that they've just done this thing where they've made a massive improvement to their menu for someone who doesn't want to eat meat, and the response they get is, you suck, and we're actually going to take you to court. Right. But what's interesting is they, they did that for meat eaters. So this, this, even to dive into this more, they're very clear. And the whole impossible thing is not really targeted towards the vegan market. They've even said like, look, that's like 2% of the market. We're sure. targeted meat eaters who want to eat less meat. So but they want it to taste that way. Right. Yeah. They want it to. So, so it's about the impact. So it's interesting is yeah. I wonder if those people are even like, you know, that's not, you don't have a lot of vegans that tend to go to Burger King and McDonald's. So then here's the point. So let's say you're 100% right about that. I wouldn't pretend to know. I just saw the surface of it. Let's say you're 100% right about that. So then here's how Burger King does the freak factor. Burger King says to those vegans, yep, you're right. That's exactly what happens. And if you're not comfortable with that, don't come don't, to Burger yeah. King. It's called yeah. Burger King. <laughs> it's called Burger King, right? Do you know the famous Southwest story where the woman used to write Herb Kelleher every week and be like, I hate your plastic tickets. I hate standing yeah. in line. You wrote, you wrote her this note and said, please, it seems like there's a better airline for you to yeah. fly. 
So we call that antagonizing in pink goldfish. Um, another example of sort of, we call it flaunting. So it's being unapologetic and unashamed of who you are as a business, of what you do and what you don't do, of who you serve and who you don't serve. And so it might seem like a company can't succeed by flaunting a weakness, by being unapologetic about something bad. No one's going to stand for that. So my favorite and the quickest example is a company called Buckley's. And they're a Canadian cough syrup company. And their cough syrup tastes terrible, absolutely <laughs> terrible. And they know it tastes terrible. And they want to expand in Canada and into the American market. And so they have to come up with a marketing campaign. And their marketing campaign is a fake taste test in which people taste Buckley's in a blind taste test and then also taste a cup of trash bag leakage. <laughs> and in the fake taste test, when the person sips the trash bag leakage after having the Buckley's, they're like, definitely trash bag leakage. Give me more of the trash bag leakage before I ever want to drink whatever was in that other cup. Again, Buckley's didn't say it's new and improved. We made it minty. We made a cherry flavor. We toned it down. There's a light version. We added sugar. They said it tastes worse than you can possibly imagine. They're like, you cannot even fathom. In fact, I was about to use that example and I put up a Buckley slide. And before I got to how bad it tasted, this Canadian in the room shouted out that it tasted like crap. Like he just had like PTSD like without me asking or without any prompting, he just like had this violent reaction to seeing it on the screen. That's how bad it is. And yet they're not trying to fix it. And yet they're very successful. And they're successful because basically the message is it works because it tastes awful. Why would it taste so bad? You need your cough to get better. You're not looking for a tasty beverage. It's a medicine, right? And they've actually had, they've done other kind of antagonizing ads in the past where they're like, if you really cared enough about getting rid of your coffee, you'd take some Buckley's. But apparently you're not man enough or you're not adult enough or you're not strong enough or you don't really care enough. If you really wanted it, it's like a, it's like a mean coach or a drill instructor, right? Yeah. If you really wanted it, you'd do this, right? And so they were tremendously successful by saying our current cough syrup not only tastes bad, it tastes incredibly bad, worse than you can possibly imagine. And we're not going to fix it. And if you don't like it, you have a problem, not us. Whoa, right? And it worked, right? And it worked. And that's what Herb Kelleher did with Southwest. And they're not just the most successful airline, the, the most profitable airline. They're one of the most profitable businesses in America, in the world over the last 30 years. And yet nobody can really get the message. Everybody goes, yeah, but I mean, sooner or later, I mean, you got to kind of, you know, some people, I mean, you can't just, you know, you got to, there's something... We always want to hem and haw about it. We can't just take the lesson and learn it and do it. We end up conforming to what everybody, we, we follow all the other airlines and they all end up looking the same. We can't copy the Southwest model, even though it's obviously working. Yeah, Fran Fry from Harvard has done some great work on this about what makes companies great. And the Southwest example or the IKEA example said the worst thing that can happen is a board member spouse gets on a flight and then writes to them and says, oh, they have these paper tickets and they wait in line and then they complain to them. And they say, we got to change this. Or they say to IKEA, oh, your furniture falls apart. When that's the feature, right? That's not the, <laughs> that's not the yeah. fault. And then, they, and then it causes them to go change the direction and make something to everyone rather than just sort of owning it and saying, yeah, you know what? We're, this isn't lifetime furniture. Well, this, this is isn't like for two, you. three years. Yeah, exactly. If you're on the board of Southwest, fly your private yeah. plane. Don't fly Southwest. Yeah. yeah. Right. And another, uh, another good example of that is I was listening to uh, an audiobook about Airbnb and Uber and things like that. These, the way these companies are kind of virtualizing things that used to be physical, you know, like hotels and taxis and things like that. And when they would pitch Airbnb to really wealthy investors, it didn't make any sense. It wasn't yeah, one of these right. classic, like, I don't think that'll make money. The person would put themselves in the shoes of someone looking for someplace to stay and right. said, I'm not staying at your shitty apartment and sleeping on your couch. What are you talking about? Who is this for? Because it wasn't for them, right? right. They couldn't imagine a world in which, because they don't know anybody that's looking for someplace to crash when they're visiting San Francisco, right? So they didn't invest because they couldn't get it. So we do need to be able to say, yeah, this might even look like a flaw to me. This isn't for me. This is not for my wife. This is not for my kids. And that's part of the point. And that's the antagonizing part is sometimes the people that need to be antagonized is even, you know, maybe the people that we're friends with. Tell, tell your friends, hey, I own this business, but don't sign up. This isn't for you. Right. You won't like it. 
and I'm not going to change it for you, but don't think like you're going to help me out by buying this. This isn't good for you. No, totally. Well, that's very good advice. So last question for you, Dave, and this could be a singular or repeated, but what is the personal or professional mistake that you've learned the most from? I think, you know, some people are impressed by um, my schooling. If I could start over, I wouldn't go to college. I wouldn't get a master's degree. I wouldn't get a doctorate. All of those things were my effort to prove to someone, no one in particular, society, the world, employers, that I was a competent, valuable adult who could provide a valuable service. And if I could start over, I would start my business in high school. I wouldn't work at Kmart. I wouldn't work delivering newspapers. I would start my business in high school and I would make my own way from the very beginning and I would do my own thing and I would trust myself. I think that's my biggest mistake, not trusting myself. I believed everybody else. I believed they were right. I believed I was wrong. I believed their way worked and my way wouldn't. I believed that I was weak and they were strong. And it turns out none of those things were true. And it turns out not only was I not wrong, I was way, way, way more right than most of those people were. And I've gone on to do way, way more than most of those people who told me that I wasn't going to make it. Um, it's kind of like my daughter the other day. She was in school and she goes to a small private religious school here in a rural part of eastern North Carolina. We're not in any kind of metropolis. Um, we're an hour outside of Raleigh. And this teacher at this little school who probably makes $25,000 a year, and I don't think uh, they even offer very good health benefits, a student used some bad grammar, some southern slang. And the teacher said, you're never going to be a Fortune 500 CEO talking like that. Hmm. And what my daughter thought, but didn't say out loud was, well, you're not exactly a Fortune 500 CEO, are you? <laughs> what would you know about how a Fortune 500 CEO does or doesn't say how they do or don't talk? And that was my problem growing up. The people who were telling me what it took to be successful didn't know what it took to be successful. They didn't know what my potential was. And they also didn't know what the options out there in the world were. And I took their advice and their guidance far too seriously because I thought they had a secret that I don't have. I thought they knew something that I didn't know. And it turns out they didn't. It turns out nobody really knows the secret. It turns out that no one's really in charge. It turns out there's a lot more opportunities than we really think they are. And there's not as many rules as we think there are. And so that's the thing that I would change. That's the biggest mistake that I made was trying to conform to other people's definition of reality and believing that they had a true definition of reality and I needed to live my life based on that. That's a great, great answer and a great example. I really wish I had a video camera and that your daughter had answered that and we could have, <laughs> could have captured that, that moment um, because, yeah, it would, it would have been priceless. Well, David, where can people find more about you and your work? Yeah, so drendel.com. So D as in David, R-E-N-D-A-L-L, drendel.com. Um, it's got versions of uh, shorter versions of my talks. Um, it's got links to the books. It's got the assessment that we talked about. It's got the kids assessment we talked about. The kids book is a free video on YouTube, and it's right on my website as well. You can share that with your kids who have dyslexia or ADHD or, or autism, or they're just being bullied or they're standing on some way. I mean, I've had people, I wear so much pink. I've had parents who show their kids pictures of me on stage so that their son stops feeling bad about the kids who tease him for wearing pink. And then he confidently goes in the next day and can say, basically, screw you. I wear pink just like this awesome speaker guy. And if you don't like it, you can fight him, you know? So that's on the website is everything you need, links to everything that you might want. Most of it's free. And uh, I'm just trying to get this message out there as far and wide as I can. Great. Well, it's an important message. So I hope uh, we've, we've helped to do that. David, thank you for everything that you do and sharing your story. I, you're definitely changing the conversation on what it means to conform and fit in. And I know you've helped a lot of people embrace what makes them unique and, and lean into their strengths. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to David and his books and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Quick favor, if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the content. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, you can just select the library icon, click on Elevate, and scroll down to the bottom to leave your review. It takes about 30 seconds. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.